you're all familiar with bucket lists, right? Things we want to do before we die. So this 85-year-old lady, on her bucket list, before she died, wanted to go skydiving. Skydiving. So she took the couple of hours in the morning to do the training, and then in the afternoon, the, she got on the plane, and uh, they went up to 4,000 feet. And just as they were getting ready to jump out of the plane, she calls to her husband, who's on the ground. And she says to her husband, I got up, but I can't fall down. Unbelievable. (laughs) You know, I've fallen and never mind if I have to explain it, what is the point? And why are you laughing so hard? Let's stand together. I guess that's the morning silencer, I guess, huh? Wow. Okay. You will pay. Okay, I'm reading the blue, and you're going to read the black. This is what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold Together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleasing to, to, him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now that's the text that we're going to get to, but we're going to get to that next week. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you and thank you, again for Jesus Christ especially. And we ask that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and Lord, help us, we pray, to live out your truth in tangible, meaningful ways at every level of our lives. And this we ask in Christ's name and for his name's sake. Amen. Why don't you be seated? So we begin this morning, and the reason why I'm doing this in two parts is because when you look at verse 23, which is what we want to get to, you really can't talk about verse 23 unless you talk about verses 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, because they sort of provide the foundation for what we want to talk about next week. And so we begin this morning with this song of praise. That's what verses 15, 15 and following is. It's a song of praise. 
This is what has been called in Colossians, here's a big term for you, the great Christology. And Christology, of course, is the study of Jesus Christ, who He is, and why it matters. It is one of the most profound and one of the most powerful texts in the entire New Testament. Matter of fact, probably in the entire Bible, it's actually a song. It's called the Christ song. It's a song that is sung in praise of or in praise to Jesus. It is a song that they literally sang in the early church in Colossae. Actually, it's a song that not only did they sing, but other congregations and other Christians sang it, and it's a song that we still sing today. It's a song of praise. Now, There's a number of reasons why this song is so important. And the first one is simply, as I just mentioned a moment ago, that the entire book of Colossians is woven around these verses, this song of Christ. And not only is the book of Colossians woven around it, but so is the New Testament woven around this message. But there's another reason. And the other reason is equally important and probably more so important for us today, and it is this. It's intended to give us confidence and to correct any false teaching that we or others may have about who Jesus Christ is. How many of you have ever asked somebody, who do you think Jesus Christ is? And if you've ever asked that question, then you know that you get a number of answers. You get the answer that he was a great spiritual teacher. You get the answer that he was a great moral person, a moral teacher. You get the answer that he was a prophet. And sometimes you might even get the answer that he is a son of God. And sometimes even the son of God. We are living in a culture and in a time where many other stories are being told about who Jesus is and who he is not by many different storytellers. And some are going out of their way to undermine the biblical and the Christian understanding of who it is that Jesus Christ is. But the good news to that is that this is nothing new. Matter of fact, we owe this section of the Bible to the fact that there was a number of teachers in the um, city or the town or the community of Colossae who were teaching false things about Jesus, and Paul actually writes this to refute them. And so we actually have this portion of text because of the heresy that was being circulated. And we are battling similar things that the first century and the first Christians battled. And why is this important? Why is it important for us to focus on who Jesus is? Well, let me tell you why it's important. Because if Jesus is not who the Bible says he is and who we have claimed that he is, then folks, our faith means nothing. We just as well sell this building and this property we call our missionaries home and we go about living whatever spiritual or following whatever spiritual path that we seem fit to follow. And further, 
If Jesus Christ is not who he says he is and who the Bible says he is and who Colossians says he is, then all we have are the, is a, a collection of good sayings from just another person and not a dynamic relationship with the God of creation. But if Colossians is right and true, and if what we believe is true, and Jesus really is God, then that's a whole other situation. Now the song begins with the supremacy of Christ. And what's interesting is this. Paul begins by saying he is. He he never uses the name Jesus He never uses the proper titles like Christ or Lord. He just says he is. But we know, of course, that this song could only refer to Jesus Christ, not to anybody else. And it's a song about Jesus' primacy or his preeminence of who he is. And so, who is he? Who is he? Well, our text begins with, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, that God is invisible is well attested to in the Old Testament and the New Testament because we know that God is spirit. Jesus himself said these words. He said in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, but he who was at the Father's side who has made him known. And so what that indicates to us is that the invisible God has become visible in, through, and as Jesus Christ. The very nature and the very character of God has been perfectly, perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. Now this is about his person. It's about his person. And it's about his person in relationship to the Father, through his Father, our Heavenly Father. Now, our text uses the language of image. Now, we all know what that means, right? And the first Christians were no different than we are. They had different Images, but they certainly understood the concept of image because no matter where you went in the Roman Empire, there was an image of Caesar. And there would have been multiple images of Caesar in Colossae, like our money, Caesar was on their money. He would have, there would have been images of him in the marketplace and images of him in the Colosseum and in the gymnasiums and on their jewelry and on their lamps just like we have images and pictures today. Matter of fact, you can't drive down Paris Street or Regent Street or the Kingsway or any area and not see some of these corporate images. We recognize them. They are familiar to us. And the early church had their images and pictures and portraits that they recognized. By the way, the word image is from the Greek word icon. 
And it's where we get our English word, I-C-O-N. Every time you turn on your laptop or your iMac or you turn on your iPad or your phone, you see icons. This is where the word comes from. Now, image or icon has two nuances. First of all, it is a representation. And it means that Jesus is the perfect picture of God. It means that Jesus is the perfect portrait of God. We've probably heard the story about the child who was, had some paper and they were drawing a picture. And the parent says, what are you drawing? And the child says, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. To which the parent replies and says, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And the child said, they will when I'm done. And that's not a morning groaner. That's what God said. God said, when I'm through, when I'm through with Jesus, they're going to know exactly what I look like. When I'm finished and Jesus comes and he takes on human flesh, the world is going to know exactly who I am. And that's what God is doing in, through, and as Jesus Christ. We look at Jesus and we see who God is. It's a likeness that is not accidental It is deliberate, and it is intentional. Hebrews says he is the radiance, talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And then it says this, the exact imprint of his nature. The second thing that icon means, it first of all means representation. But the second thing, it means manifestation. Now, if you got your device or your Bible, look at verse 15. It says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I got to tell you, that statement, the firstborn of all creation, gets us into some trouble. And it needs to be explained. Because it sounds like, when you read it first in English, that it sounds like Jesus is a created being, like you and me. That the second person of the Trinity is the first created being of all creation. Well, that's not the case for a number of reasons. First of all, it's not consistent with the context. Now, remember Pastor Scott last week, he said a text without context is a... Oh, really? He said a text without context is only pretext... And this is the case. Now, this is why, this is why, forgive me for saying that this is why the Jehovah's Witnesses and other belief systems claim that Jesus is a created being. Because of this statement that it says right here, that he is the firstborn of all creation. But what we understand from the Bible is that Jesus existed before all creation. And not only that, more than that, Jesus is the creator himself. Now let me develop this. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was not a newcomer. 
when he came to Bethlehem. The second thing is that statement that Jesus is created, or the first of all created beings, is not consistent with the New Testament. Because elsewhere, it affirms his uniqueness and his responsibility and his works around creation. John says, John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. But here's the most important thing you need to know is that it's inconsistent with the biblical usage of the word firstborn. To say that Jesus, because the Bible says that he is the firstborn of all creation, to say that because of that Jesus is a, a created being is inconsistent with the, how the Bible uses the term. Now, Pastor Scott said last week that every good sermon should have a Greek reference. So here it is. The word firstborn means protakos. You know what a prototype is? Right? A prototype is the first, one of a kind. That comes from the word proto, which means new. And the word firstborn means protakos. And this is what it means. It means not that he is the first in the series. It can mean that that he is the first of four or five children, or whatever the case may be. But in the Bible, firstborn means priority or sovereignty. It means that it refers to somebody who is supreme and somebody who has a special place. And by the way, it is used 130 times in the Old Testament in that way. So the context makes it plain that Jesus is not a created being because he is the one by whom all of creation came into existence. But unfortunately, when we read it in English, our English word firstborn does not draw attention to the idea of supremacy or the idea of priority of rank. And when the Bible says in Colossians that he is the firstborn among all creation, it literally means that Jesus is unique and that he is distinguished apart from creation. That he is prior to and that he is supreme over creation because he is creation's Lord. Now, does that make sense? That's clear as mud, isn't it? Okay, you're looking at me like deer in the headlights. The good news about this sermon is going to be online. <clears throat> but that brings us then to another statement that gets us into some trouble and needs some explanation. And it talks about Jesus' person in relation to creation. Now, Verse 16, if you've got your device or you've got your Bible, it says this, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and all things were created through him and for him. Now, there are three phrases that you want to underline in that or you want to highlight in that verse, 16. By him, through him, and for him. 
This is what it means. It means that by Him, Jesus is the architect of creation. Through Him means that Jesus is the builder of creation. And for Him, or by the way, a better word, toward Him, means that the goal of all of creation is Jesus Christ. It's for Him. It's toward Him. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Now, remember I said to you that this verse gets us into trouble? The first two, that by Him and through Him, gets us into some trouble with science. Because one of the big things that science is trying to uncover is the origination of creation. And they are trying their best to make sure that it doesn't come back to Jesus, that it doesn't come back to God. But the Big Bang did mess them up a bit. Now understand that when we talk about evolution, we're talking about something different. But when we talk about the origination of creation... Scientists do not have an answer. they got a lot of theories, and they, they talk like it's fact. And they want us to believe that their theories are fact, but they're not. The Bible holds out very clearly that God is creator. That he is the originator specifically, that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, created all things. So the first two comments that by him and through him create some problem for science. But the third one, for him or toward him, creates some problems for me and you. If I were to ask you to write a one-word sentence about what is the purpose of your life. What would you write? Now, you don't have to answer. And I'd probably, if we were doing this, give you a little bit more time to think about it. But it's a, it's a worthy exercise. <clears throat> In one sentence, what is the purpose of your life? Now, put your seatbelt on. You ready for this? The purpose of your life and my life, of our lives... Christian or non-Christian, we were created for Jesus Christ. And everything I do and everything you do and everything we do is supposed to be toward Him, for His praise and for His glory. Let me give you an example. Every time you get paid... I know we benefit from it, because hunger is a great motivator. I know we benefit from it, but that's not the primary purpose. Now, you want to think that the school board or valet or Health Sciences North is the people that pay your wages. No. God pays your wages. He just uses those institutions and those organizations and businesses to do it. And every time you get paid, and every time I get paid, it's for Jesus Christ. The church 
used to have, uh, the form of more traditional churches used to have a prayer. And the prayer was this. Everything they prayed was for Jesus' sake. What I'm trying to tell you is that everything that happens in my life and your life and through your life and my life is for Jesus' sake. And this is what most Christians don't understand and don't get. It's not about me, and it's not about you, and it's not even about the church, and it's not even about creation. It's about Jesus Christ. Every time you and I have a child, we become parents, and we are incredibly blessed. But it's for Christ's sake first. Everything. Every time you draw a breath. Every time my heart beats. It's toward Jesus. It's all about Him. It's for Christ's sake. That's what we forget. Now, if all of that is true... And by the way, it is. Do you know what that means? Got your seatbelt on? It means that Jesus Christ has claim to your life and my life. The problem is this. That too many Christians live like Jesus has no claim on their life. And first and foremost reason why we exist today, while you're here and I'm here on this planet, it's for Christ's sake. Now that brings us to this. His position. And notice what it says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Did you know that the Lord of the universe has two bodies? The first one is a real and physical body which he took on himself when God became human flesh in Jesus Christ, which we're going to celebrate very shortly at Christmas. And that body was the body that he had on earth. And by the way, the body that he still has in eternity, he sits at the right hand of God in human flesh, just like me and you. And I'm not going to get into that. That's a whole other exciting reality that talks about the beauty and the wonder of what it means for you to be human. And the glory and the dignity of that is profound. The God of the universe took on human flesh, and that flesh that he took on is forever. But God, as the Lord of the universe, has another body, a metaphorical, physical body, and that is the church. We are members of his body. We are his hands, his eyes, his mouth, his organs, his skin. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a part of his body? To answer that question, we turn to verse 18, that he is the head of the body, the church. And what that means is this, that how I treat you is how I treat Christ. Think about that for a moment. How you treat me is how you treat Christ. 
How we treat one another is how we treat Christ. So for example, after a long day, I sit down on my nice leather chair, and I put my feet up, and my feet are aching, and my head doesn't say something like, well, it looks like the feet are experiencing pleasure. No, the head smiles and says, ah, that feels good. Here's the principle. What ministers to the body ministers to the head. Let me give you another example. So we know a little bit about this. If a mosquito begins to bite my hand, and all of a sudden as it's biting me, I realize that it is sucking blood from my limb, and in truth it is actually lunching on my body. And as soon as the sensation reaches the head and registers, the other hand moves to swat the mosquito. Here's the principle. When we bite the body, we bite Christ. Now, if you're not sure that what I'm telling you is accurate, then I bring you to the book of Acts. And Paul is on the road to Damascus. Now, the Apostle Paul, before he was a follower of Jesus Christ, for those of you who don't know, was actually a persecutor of the church who actually beat Christians and put them in prison because he wanted to snuff out the church. And on the way to do this in Damascus, he has a vision of the risen Christ. And notice what Jesus does not say to him. Jesus does not say to him, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting my disciples? No, Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? If you're not sure about that, then I bring you to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, where it says this, sinning against your brother or sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Here's the principle. When we attack the body, we attack Christ. That's the point. You know how we say sometimes when two people are just kind of always together like they're best friends? Uh, What is that thing? BF? There you go. BFFs, and we say they're the off. You know, there's a they're joined at the hip. Does that anybody raise your hand if you've ever heard that they're joined at? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just want to make sure I'm talking to the right crowd. Well, you know, in Jesus Christ, we're not joined at the hip. We're joined at the head. We're joined at the head. And the second thing that he is firstborn from among the dead means that he is the first to be resurrected. And everything is predicated. It is based. It is rooted on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing you need to know. The same Spirit that brought Jesus out of the grave is the same Spirit that lives in us. 
We have resurrection power living in us because we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. There's a great verse in Romans chapter 8, and I didn't write it in. It says this, And the same Spirit that brought Jesus out of the dead will quicken your mortal bodies. You know what mortal means? It means our physical bodies. Make no wonder people are able to be healed. And lives transformed because the same Spirit that brought Jesus out of the dead, out of the grave, is the same Spirit that lives inside of us. And the third thing, and so the point is that no head, no life. And the third thing is this, and here it is. That in everything He might be preeminent. That He is first that he has primacy in his person, in his position, in his place, in his work, in his church. And he is supposed to have supremacy in my life and in your life, in our lives. I'm going to invite Pastor Scott to come with the worship team. And I'm just going to keep you five minutes. But I want you to kind of Close your eyes for a minute. And I got a couple of questions that I want to ask you. And I think it's important that we take the time this morning to actually think about them. And here's the question. It's not rocket science. Close your eyes. Some of you are looking at me. Close your eyes for a minute. Just for privacy. This is not about your spouse. This is not about your friend. This is not about your family. It's not about the person next to you, behind you, or in front of you. This is about you. This is about me. This is about I. Is Jesus always the head in my life? Ask yourself that question. Is Jesus always the head in my life? Number two, What is the purpose of my life? It is, I exist for Jesus Christ. I exist for Jesus Christ. Any and everything that happens in my life is toward Jesus Christ. I exist. For Jesus Christ. And here's the last one. Does Jesus have supremacy in my life? Does he have first place? Or is it, you know, he has first place on Sunday. Well, if I get out of church, get out of bed on time to come to church. He has first place in my life when it's convenient. He has first place in my life when I've got enough money. No, that's not what the question is. The question is, in every and any situation and circumstance, does Jesus Christ have supremacy in my life?